Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We continue today a very special series called Heaven with Dr. Newfeld, and our message is entitled What Happens to the Believer at Death? So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For those of you who are facing your own death, what I have to say will be of great importance and of great encouragement. For those of you who have had a loved one who has died in the Lord, what I have to say will make your grieving process to be rich. You will not grieve as those who have no hope. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, the Apostle Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What we learn today, when we learn what happens to a believer at death, should take away the sting of death. So let's begin our study today by answering the most obvious of all questions. Why do Christians get sick, suffer, and die? We know that both believers and unbelievers die, but death for believers is not punishment and cannot be related to our sins. Romans 8.1 teaches us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has removed our condemnation by being condemned and by suffering and dying on our behalf. So why do we suffer? According to Hebrews 12, verse 6, we read, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Later on, we're told that we are to endure all hardship as discipline or discipleship or as training. God is treating us as his sons. Hardship, suffering, and death trains us not to set our hopes on this earth, but to set our hopes in God. Therefore, Christians should view the aging process accompanied by sickness and eventually by death as God's plan to disciple us so that we might grow in sanctification, relying more and more on His power rather than our own. Then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, "...that I may know Him." and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. God brings believers to death not because of the fall, or because of our own sins, or because disease is random and happens to all, but rather to allow us not only to be made holy through suffering, but also that we might share a union with Christ. We taste death so that we might know what our Savior tasted for us, so that we might both identify with Him and love Him who died for us. Look at it this way. When my oldest daughter first moved out of our house, one day she came home and announced, Do you know how expensive groceries are? (laughs) I smiled and I said, No, honey, I didn't know. I mean, are they expensive? And in an instant, my daughter understood that when she grew up in her house, our act of love was to pay the grocery bills for her. And now for the first time, she realized the expense of what we had done, and she identified with us and understood a little bit more about our love for her. And that's what death does for believers. In mercy, God allows his children to taste death so that we might see his great love in sending his son to die for us. And when we arrive on heaven's shore, we will say, I never knew how great was the sacrifice you paid for me until, in a small way, I identified with you in my own death. So that, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is the honor that Christ has for us that we might die in union with Jesus. But how should believers think about death, either their own or the death of those close to them? Let's listen to the voice of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, 21 to 23. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I am to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so the Apostle Paul, facing the possibility of his own death, is in a bit of a quandary. On the one hand, he wishes to stay alive, for he has a ministry that Christ has assigned to him. But for Paul, the idea of not dying is a sacrifice, for he knows that to die is better by far. That same sentiment is expressed in Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who died in the Lord from now on. And so the Bible pronounces upon all believers that death is not a curse, but a blessing. And it is this blessing that we now turn to. What happens to a believer when he or she dies? Well, let's be clear. When anyone dies, their body dies, but not their soul. For the first time, death represents the tearing of the body from the soul. It is at this point that many wonder what should happen. I mean, can the soul exist apart from the body? You know, until this moment, the soul has thought and felt and experienced and grown and learned through the body. The soul functions in the body and in the physical world. Can that activity continue without the body and how? Furthermore, God designed our bodies that when he did so, he said it was good. Indeed, the book of Genesis portrays God as creating Adam from the dust of the earth, and so we might say that to be human is to be of this earth or made in the image of the earth. But God also breathed his breath into Adam, and so we can also say that to be human is to be made in the image of God. That is, there is in the human experience both an earthly and a spiritual dimension, and both are said to be good. So what happens when the soul is torn from the body? Well, the answer to that question is somewhat involved. But before I answer that, let's do away with an error that gets paraded every once in a while. It's called the error of soul sleep. According to some, the soul falls asleep and waits to be awakened at the last resurrection. Now, they justify this by the fact that the Bible sometimes uses the words to fall asleep as a metaphor for death. You find that, for instance, in Acts 7, verse 60, when Stephen, the first martyr, died, there it says, he fell asleep. But sleep is never used as a metaphor for unconscious non-existence. As we know, we dream when we sleep and our brain is active. But to sleep is an appropriate metaphor for death because just like when we fall asleep, we will awaken, and it is to this awakening that the Bible speaks. But how and when? Well, let's read Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, let me draw out several important points from this text. 
First, when Christ returns, all those who have died in him will follow him as he comes to rightfully reclaim this earth as his own. The dead in Christ will rise first, that is, they rise just prior to his second coming. Now, clearly, the First Thessalonians account is somewhat collapsed. What is referred to in First Thessalonians is also discussed in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, and is there we get a picture of not just the dead in Christ, but the martyrs who have died in Christ, given a special place of honor, and there in verse 4 we're told, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and then it said the rest of the dead, that is the unrighteous dead, those whose sins were not forgiven, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Then Revelation 25 calls this the first resurrection. Blessed are those, says the passage, who share in the first resurrection. This, of course, means that there is a second resurrection. But interestingly enough, Revelation doesn't call this the second resurrection, but rather it calls this the second death. One thousand years after the first resurrection comes the second death. The idea is simple. Blessed are those who are a part of the first resurrection. They will have no part of the second death. For the second death is the resurrection of the damned, which comes at the end of the age. So we come back to 1 Thessalonian text, and there Paul says, And you should know this, so you will not grieve as those who have no hope. Those of us who are left alive when Christ returns will not receive our resurrection bodies ahead of those who have died. The dead in Christ, just like us, are right now awaiting the resurrection of the body, and the dead will get their resurrection body ahead of us just before the second coming of Jesus. Now, at first glance, that passage might seem to indicate that the dead in Christ are asleep or that in some ways they're not conscious until the coming of Christ. Now, if that were so, we might argue that they rest in peace until the second coming of Jesus, but they are not conscious now or aware of anything now until God makes for them a new resurrected body in which their soul functions. But that's wrong. If you consider everything the Bible says about the death of believers, you have to consider 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9 as well. There we read, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now, when we come back, we will look at what many Bible teachers call the intermediate state, that is, a place that is not yet our eternal home, and yet is a place which is far superior to life on earth that all those who have died in the Lord right now enjoy. Few series have stimulated as much response from our listeners as Dr. John Newfeld's Heaven series. Offering a biblical perspective on heaven, both our eyes and hearts are open to an amazing picture of what the follower of Jesus has to look forward to. When we last aired this series, we also offered the Heaven booklet authored by Randy Alcorn. Again, a wonderful overview of the promise of paradise. This booklet was so popular, we were unable to fulfill all the requests. But with the re-airing of the series by Dr. John, we've been able to acquire a very limited number of booklets to give away. So let me encourage you today to call and request your free copy of the booklet, Heaven, by Randy Alcorn, While Quantities Last. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or ask by email at info at backtothebible.ca. (laughs) 
since the doctrine of soul sleep is not scriptural, and since the death of a believer is a blessed event that introduces them to a life that is better by far and yet is still not the final resurrection of the body, many Bible teachers, myself included, prefer to use the words intermediate state to describe the experience of a believer who has died now. I know that we normally say that when a believer dies, they are in heaven now. Well, yes, they are, but what do we actually mean by that? I want you to imagine that the pathway to our final eternal dwelling place comes in a number of stages. Of course, we are born into sin and have inherited a sin nature resulting from Adam's fall. Then when we come to Christ, something wonderful happens. According to John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That would mean that whenever anyone believes, they have already crossed over from death to life. That means that the life of God in eternity has already taken root in their hearts the moment we believe in Christ. So that is the first stage of the life to come. It's called the new birth. And by that, we already know that we have received the life to come now. Heaven has already touched us now. We have a foretaste of it now. Then comes the next stage. Let me read John 4, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so Jesus is stating that the dead who die in the Lord now, right now, hear the voice of the Son of God and live. That is, whenever a believer dies, he or she immediately hears Christ calling them and they live in his presence. But as we have seen, that though this is better by far, it's still not the last stage or the final reward that God has prepared for us. I have an illustration of this. Imagine you lived in Tuktayaktuk, which is in the northern end of the Northwest Territories, far above the Arctic Circle. Imagine you live there in the winter when the sun never rises. Imagine you're told that a very rich and gracious benefactor has purchased a property for you just outside of Honolulu, a wonderful house that has an oceanfront property. You're told of water that is not frozen, of going outside with shorts and a short-sleeved shirt and sandals, and you never have to fight 24-hour darkness ever again. You might object to my illustration that our present life now is far better than tuk in the middle of the winter, but remember also that this life is the life where sin and death and rebellion and evil live. Even though we've received the eternal life from the Spirit as a down payment, we live in the valley of the shadow of death at this moment. Now imagine the day of your move has finally arrived. You get a plane ticket and you're on your way to your new destination and you realize it has one stopover. And that stopover will be in Vancouver. You travel in January to Vancouver, which is better by far. And as you arrive, you're overwhelmed with what greets you. There's no snow on the ground. The sun comes up every day. Yeah, it rains a lot, but it's better by far. But your final home is yet to come. So what is this stopover or this intermediate state? It means that the dead in Christ have had their earthly body destroyed, but that his or her soul or his spirit continues to live. We will talk more about that tomorrow. And you might object to my illustration again, because Vancouver is certainly not perfect. Rains a lot, it feels dreary in January, and all that's true. Every illustration has limits to it, and mine certainly does. In contrast, the dead in Christ are now experiencing perfection, perfect joy, perfect fulfillment, exquisite glory. Right now, they behold the presence of the Father. 
but they are not yet experiencing the fulfillment of all things. They, like us, await the renewal of all things, both of their body and of the new heaven and earth. We with them await the second coming of Jesus and the new body. And so in this way, both we here, the church on earth, and they there, the church in heaven, eagerly await the second coming of Jesus and the renewal of all things. Now, having established a number of stages in our salvation, the first beginning with our conversion, the second being the intermediate state, we might then wonder about both the millennial reign of Christ and the very final new heavens and new earth. The Bible seems to indicate a period of 1,000 years that will exist between the time in which Christ returns and the time in which he will establish a new heavens and a new earth. There's only one place in the Bible in which this matter is referred, and that's in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. It says, And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. If you then skip forward to Revelation 20, verses 7 to 8, we read, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, in the end, the Lord consumes the enemies of God, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, and all humanity is raised to stand before the great white throne. While the millennium is only mentioned here in Revelation, the concept seems to find root in a number of Old Testament passages. For instance, Isaiah 65 verse 20 says, Of the days to come, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old will be accursed. Now, the idea of there being a time when no infant dies anymore, and yet a day, when there is a person who lives a short life and dies at a hundred, well, that can't refer either to heaven, where no one can live out their days, so to speak, nor can that refer to any time period in this sin-cursed creation. And so the normal way to interpret the Isaiah passage is that Christ will return to the earth and with him all those he has given a new body. And for 1,000 years, Christ will physically reign over this earth from Jerusalem. Those who partake in the first resurrection, us who believe in Christ, will have received glorified, perfect bodies that will never die. And in these resurrected bodies, they will live on earth and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. For the unbelievers who remain on earth after the second coming, the idea seems to be that many turn to the Lord since he is physically reigning in Jerusalem and they are saved, although not everyone does. This period ends with a final battle and the end of the earth. For many, this seems speculative, even unbelievable. Are we really to imagine a time when the resurrected are on earth at the same time as people who have not yet received these new bodies? Well, I would argue that's exactly what the Bible teaches. But since this is not a study in eschatology, I'll not go into the details. However, the point is simple. Those who have died in Christ, along with us who still remain here, have a common desire. We not only desire the resurrection of the body, but we desire to rule and reign with Christ. 
In the end, when the millennium comes to an end, and I'm reading from Revelation 20, verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. According to the text, at this general resurrection of the earth, a great judgment will ensue in which everyone will be judged by what they have done, and most will be found unworthy of the life to come. But those whose names are written in the book of life, who have been bought and purchased by Christ, will be saved. And then when all these things have transpired, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And with that is the beginning of a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and our future in which we will always be with the Lord. Stay tuned as we continue to discuss this matter. John, thanks for your message today. You know, it made me think and consider a little bit about what we as a staff has gone through this past year, and that's the loss of uh, Rebecca, our uh, previous production manager, and she was a wonderful woman of God. And uh, But there is some just confidence in knowing where she's going after death. She's a believer that is going to heaven. Yeah, and she's a believer who is in heaven, and I think we need to really confidently say that. Uh, that death really did not have the victory over Rebecca as death has the victory over uh, no one who trusts in Christ. So uh, I think there is this, um, you know, there's still a weeping, there's this missing of who she was in this, uh, in, in, in Back to the Bible and in among the office staff. And, and I think we all remember her quite well. But I think we rejoice in the fact that uh, she is not lost she is actually right now in the presence of Christ and uh, participating in the grand adventure for which she was created for. Uh, it's so helpful to remember that she wasn't created for this world. She was created for eternity. Can I ask you a quick question, though? I think a lot of us would think she was taken too soon. How do you, ex- how do you explain that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know that we ever can. I mean, I think we can answer in a general way that God has his moments. I, I love to quote um, the, the verse in Scripture that says, you know, is appointed unto a man once to die from the book of Hebrews. Um, and, and I take that to mean that there is an appointment that we have in God's daytimer. And when that appointment arrives, we will indeed be in his presence, though the reason for every single individual and why some are taken earlier than others I don't know, and and none of us knows that. The only comfort that we have is in God's eternal promises. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean Cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, special musical guests, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God's people. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada listeners, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate. 